You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Kids riding their longboard, they've got their headphones in, they've got the phone in front of them, they run into someone or something and scrape their knees up. This is common in a world full of screens. We are well acquainted with people who get obsessed with a little picture of reality and miss what's going on around them. That's true when it comes to technology, but that's also true, I think, sometimes when it comes to spirituality. In fact, that's something that Christians are often accused of, being people who get so caught up in the little picture of things like resurrection and everlasting life, that they actually miss what's going on around them. They neglect the world. Many people have accused Christians of being distant people who are disengaged, right? They've got a picture of heaven and they're just hunkering down with their little tribe, waiting for death so that they can be freed eventually. They believe in escapism. An evacuation practice that we're all waiting This was the primary critique of philosopher and economist Karl Marx. Familiar with Karl Marx, he had a famous phrase that said, religion is the opiate of the masses. The opiate of the masses. And he had his sights set specifically on Christianity. It's a drug, he thought. It's something that just numbs us to the suffering going on in our world. He called it an illusion for the weak, that we're not able to handle suffering and death in the world. It's some pie-in-the-sky and wishful-thinking ideology. And this understanding of Christianity, I'm actually not really blaming Karl Marx for. There's been a lot of Christians who have articulated this over the years. Christians have tended to sell Christianity as an escape route, as an evacuation from suffering. Dietrich Bonhoeffer dealt with this in his day. He was a theologian who lived during World War II under the Nazi regime. And he critiqued Christians who saw things this way. He said, if you believe that life everlasting is some last escape into eternity, you're missing the point of the idea. And those sorts of assumptions or misconceptions or caricatures of Christianity are exactly why this series we're in right now is so important to us. We're studying this Apostles' Creed, this ancient statement of Christian faith that billions of Christians for thousands of years have affirmed as the center, the very core of what we believe. These things orient our lives, and we're calling this series Christianity Uncomplicated because we know there's a whole bunch of ways that this faith has been muddled, a whole bunch of ways that it's been turned into escapism and evacuation routes. We want to avoid that. And today, uh, we're finishing up this series by looking at the last couple phrases of this creed. The resurrection and life everlasting. We as Christians affirm the resurrection and life everlasting. And what we learn from church history and from the scriptures is that those two phrases have very little to do with naive indifference to the world. Very little to do with an evacuation route. They actually have real impact in our lives here and now. There's two different things we're going to dig into today about the resurrection and the life everlasting. We're going to learn first that it's the defeat of death, and second, that it hones the here and now. The resurrection is the defeat of death, and that it hones the here and now. And in order to learn those things, we're going to open up our Bibles. So if you have one, turn in it with me uh, to the book of 1 Corinthians. 
I'm going to be in chapter 15. So if you're flipping through, look for the big number 15 in 1 Corinthians. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 and then skip forward to the end of the chapter, verse 51. Uh, so feel free to follow along. Uh, we have the words behind me on the screen as well if you need that. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. Now I should remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaimed to you, which you in turn received, in which you also stand, through which you also are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaimed to you, unless you've come to believe in vain. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to someone untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am and his grace towards me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have come to believe. Now skipping ahead to verse 51. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishability, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable body puts on imperishability, and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your sting? Where, O oh death, is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord. Because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There is one experience that every human who's ever lived has shared with every other human that's ever lived. Any guesses on that experience? Death. Death is the one experience that every human that's ever lived has shared with every other human. It's universal. And the universality of death often leads us in our lives to try to come to terms with it in one way or another. We actually spend much of our lives trying to come to terms with the inevitable reality of death. We don't notice this happens a lot of time, but we're always doing it. In our culture, we love to avoid death. We're trying to come to terms with it by avoiding it. We do this in our language. We don't like to say people die. We like to say they pass on, they kick the bucket, they've gone home. We don't like to say, yeah, she died. We don't love that word. We avoid it, we push it away. We do this with our money as well. Do you guys know the anti-aging industry is worth over $60 billion and is projected to more than double in the next decade? Anti-aging is an oxymoron. It's impossible, right? We are staving off the inevitable thing in an industry where we devote time and energy and money. 
We do this in our pleasures as well. Americans love to do this. We try to soften our lives, make our lives as comfortable as possible. We hydrate, we caffeinate, we medicate, but it doesn't actually do anything for us. We also do this in our hospitals. I don't know if you guys have knew this is a thing. I know a nurse who uh, has worked in hospitals where they have pushed sick patients who are close to death to the fringes of the hospital so people don't have to see them die. They push them to the farthest corners of the hospital so that the average hospital goer doesn't have to see death. We avoid it like the plague. But avoidance, friends, does nothing about the reality of death. It's still coming. All of those patients who are pushed to the corners of the hospital still die. And so that has led, oftentimes, throughout human history, for us to try to, instead of avoid death, try to soften it, make it a good thing, maybe. This was a, a classic uh, approach of, of ancient Greek philosophy. In ancient Greek philosophy, they believed that your soul was trapped in this broken world and in this broken body. This is actually something that looks a lot like Eastern philosophy today as well. Your job, then, is to overcome the broken world and allow your soul to be freed, which means death is actually a good thing. Death means your soul is able to be rid of the broken body and broken world that you're in. You have to segment yourself from the material world. Death is good. Socrates famously said these words, death may be the greatest of all human blessings. There's another ancient Greek philosopher named Seneca who advocated in some situations for suicide if you were terminally ill because that meant your soul could be freed from this broken world. Death is a good thing. And we aren't so bold in our culture to say these sorts of things, right? We don't go tweeting or posting these things. People will be like, hey, are you okay? Right? But we do say things like this. Have you noticed the platitudes that we say around death all the time? Everything happens for a reason. As if death is justified because you're going to find out it was a good thing in the end. Right? They've gone on to a better place as if death was a good thing. We say things like, oh, it's just natural. It's just the course of things. We try to soften the jagged edges of death. Friends, that approach doesn't work either. It sounds better, but it really is softening a thing that's heart-wrenching. We know death isn't a good thing. Anyone who's walked through the grief and pain of someone near to them dying knows death is not good, death is not natural. We don't grieve, and we don't mourn, and we don't have pain in the deepest parts of ourselves over things that are good and natural. We do that because we know it's not. That's what's going on in us around death. The parents and grandparents we lose, the friends we lose, the pain and death that we live with all the time and that we're rapidly approaching, those are all evidence that this is not good and natural to us. They are reminders to us that death is a tragedy. It is the enemy. It is ludicrous to call death in war and oppression a good thing. It is insane to call cancer that leads to death a good thing. If we say that that's true, if we try to soften this thing and make it good, we're actually sacrificing life. Death is the enemy to life, and to say death is good is to fundamentally deny the goodness and beauty of life. And that is why those two responses, avoiding and trying to make it good, that's why Jesus' response to death is so powerful. Do you guys remember Jesus' response to death when he encountered it really intimately in his life? It happened in, in John chapter 11, verse 35. You guys are actually going to get to memorize scripture today, and you're not going to have a choice. You're going to walk out of here with scripture memorized. You ready? This is the verse, John eleven thirty-five. 35. Jesus wept. 
Say it back. Jesus wept. You have memorized scripture, friends. It's that easy. You walk out of here, you just got a few thousand more words left to memorize in this book. Jesus wept. These words come after Jesus, God incarnate, the God of the universe who formed everything, come into flesh to reveal himself to us. That God heard his friend Lazarus die. Do you see why his response is powerful here? Jesus is refusing to avoid death. He's not avoiding it. He's deeply engaging it. And he's also refusing to say that death is good or natural or normal. He wouldn't weep otherwise. Jesus' tears are an affirmation that death is foreign, that it is unnatural, that it is the enemy to life. You guys, God sorrows over death. Death does not have its origin in God. Death is the enemy of God and the enemy of life. That's what this story is trying to tell us. From the opening pages, God forms everything to work in harmony together. This beautiful world of flourishing and goodness, and then humans are created to help cultivate that world with God, to partner alongside God to bring life and flourishing to all things, and to make sure death stays far, far away. And that, there's an important facet to that that speaks to us in our human nature. We are utterly dependent creatures. We do not have life on our own. We only have life as a result of what God has done. What did you guys do this morning to make yourself breathe? Nothing, right? Some other power beyond your capacity causes you to breathe, causes you to have life. That's the source of life in God. There's a reason that humans are made at the end of the creation narrative. You ever think about that? They came last and oftentimes think, well, that's because humans are the best out of all these things. No, it's because humans are dependent on the rest of everything that came before them. We are utterly dependent creatures, not independent creatures. That's important for us to remember as we approach Independence Day, right? We are dependent upon God. We are dependent upon the creation. We are dependent creatures for every bit of life. Life is only possible for us as humans when we recognize our dependence upon the source of life and then live in communion with that source. And that's precisely what humans have chosen not to do. Each of us, in our own ways, has chosen not to live within God's created order, not to live in communion with God and with others and with creation. We've chosen to define life on our terms, separate from the source that originated it. And that's what Christians mean when we talk about sin. Sin is just the rejection of the life given to us by God and a redefining of life on our terms. Sin is the rejection of the life given to us by God and a redefining of life on our terms. And death is the result of that sort of life. The reason death is in our world is because we have chosen to reject the source of life in God. But friends, none of us would be in this room if that was the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. None of us are in this room only because Jesus wept. We're in this room because Jesus died and rose again. That's why we're all here. We're not here worshiping a dead Jesus. We're not here trying to follow a dead Jesus. We are here because Jesus has risen from the grave. He's done something radical with this power of death that we have not seen in human history. In Christ, God became human in order to take on death and kill it once and for all. And then in his resurrection, he opened the pathway for each and every one of us to conquer death alongside him. He didn't do that to avoid death. 
He didn't do that to say death is a good thing. He went straight into death, straight through death, and conquered it. And that's the story that Paul is reminding us of in the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians here, reminding the early church in Corinth of. And the rest of the chapter is devoted to that reality, that Christ is resurrected, and that by turning to him in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our death-riddled lives and world, and by trusting what he has done, we too will be resurrected which is a crazy claim, you guys, at any time and in any age. The people of this day had the same sorts of questions that you and I do. Resurrected? How's that going to work, right? Because I know my relatives, I know their graves, I could dig them up, they're still there, and they're decaying, right? How's this going to work? How, in our rational brains, can we fit in this framework of resurrection? How does this work? That's actually what the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians is responding to. Paul was dealing with these questions in the early church in Corinth, and he felt that it was necessary to help elaborate on what resurrection is and how it works. That's the whole chapter. We didn't get to read the whole thing because it's long. It's a long time. We'd be here for a few hours reading this whole thing and unpacking it all. But Paul does a couple crucial things when he explains the resurrection. When he talks about the defeat of death, he mentions in specific two areas that are important when we understand this idea. First, that we're talking about resurrection not resuscitation. Resurrection, not resuscitation, which is a subtle but important difference. And you know it's a subtle and important difference if you've experienced pain in your body right now. Everyone in this room, there will come a day when your body betrays you, if it hasn't already. Right? It's going to happen. It's already happened to me. I have a herniated disc in my back, guys. I'm 27, and I feel like I'm 50 sometimes. I don't understand how it's happened, but it's happening. My body is betraying me. And eventually, if this happens often enough, or it happens to the extreme cases, we end up just saying, you know, I'm good with just like ending this, leaving this body behind, right? I don't want to deal with this anymore. You maybe have felt it if you're young and you haven't hit there yet. Maybe you felt it when you've been really sick, or when you've been really injured. You're like, man, I don't like my body right now. I don't like this sort of life. This is a, a universal thing that all of us experience. Our bodies decay. The author of Ecclesiastes talks about this. It's an ancient book of wisdom literature that we have in our scriptures. And I love how he does it. It's actually pretty clever and funny. He says this in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no pleasure in them. So he's saying, hey, remember God. Remember the one who has formed you and gave you life because eventually you're not going to like life. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be hard eventually. So remember the source of life. Stay connected to the source of life. When you become sick of being tired, when you become tired of being sick. And then he goes on to poetically describe the decaying of our bodies. This is poetry. So he says this, on the day when the house of the guards tremble. He's talking about our hands. They didn't have language for Parkinson's and arthritis and things like that. But we know as we get older, our hands don't work the way that they used to. He says, when the strong men stoop. We know that intimately, right? Ever been lifting something, moving something around, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, sheesh, right? Maybe your leg and you got a limp. You're stooped. You're stooped over. I had this experience recently. I grew up playing sports, and I've always loved disc golf in particular. And compared to many sports I play, it's not that strenuous. Uh, but a few years ago, I was playing disc golf with some friends. I went to pick up my disc, and involuntarily, as I bent over to pick it up, I was like, ah. I was like, oh, no. It's happening. It's happening right now. We stoop, right? Our bodies don't work the way that they used to. He continues on. Those looking through the windows grow dim. He's talking about our eyesight here. 
We're no longer able to see the world in the way we used to. Those of you that are older, the classic dad move, right, is the number. Hey, let me read this. Right, let me get my glasses. How many calories in this thing? You got to, like, push it farther and farther back, right? Find just the right spot. Our eyes grow dim. We can't see in the way we used to. He mentions the grinders ceasing. The grinders are your teeth. They're few. They're falling out. They're no longer lasting the way they used to. When people rise up at the sound of birds, but their songs grow faint, you can't hear as well as you used to. We know this, friends. These bodies are not bodies that we want to come back to. We don't want to see this resuscitated, right? When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, which is what he did after weeping for Lazarus, he raised him from the dead. I don't think Lazarus was like, sweet, I get to die again. He wasn't happy to be resuscitated by Jesus, right? Because he had to come back to a broken world. He had to die again. He had to come back to a broken body. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about resurrection. We're talking about something radically different. It's not a resuscitation of the broken bodies that we now know. It's a restoration into the bodies that we were always made for. It's not resuscitation of the broken bodies we know. It's resurrection into the bodies we were always made for. That's why Paul uses the word imperishable here. He's talking about a life without aching knees, without hip replacements, without memory loss, without cancer, without headlines of shootings, without systemic oppression. He's talking about a world that is formed entirely new. But notice it's out of the old thing. It's a really important thing for Christians. We believe that God resurrects the good thing that he's already made. This right now is a picture, a small picture, of what eventually is going to be made new. And Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15 here, uh, I think, a helpful image to describe what this looks like. He uses the image of a seed and a tree. So imagine you're explaining to a child or someone who doesn't know how trees work, how they work. You're saying, hey, this little seed right here, right? put that sucker in the ground, water that for a little while, and that will happen. They'd be like, you're insane. That's great. That seed becomes that redwood? No way. Not a chance, right? But it does. That's how it happens. Something in that seed transforms in a radical way and becomes a tree, becomes this flourishing bounty of life. Paul's saying the same thing happens when we go into the ground in our current broken bodies. We will be resurrected into bountiful life that expands beyond our own comprehension right now expands beyond the little seed that we get a picture of now. The resurrection is the tree of new life that arises out of the dirt that our bodies go into or become. And we're talking about the God who breathed life out of nothingness. I think he can manage our little seeds now. That's also a kind of crucial second part to this resurrection that Paul's talking about. He emphasizes that it's a bodily resurrection. It's not just our souls we often picture that. When people die, we think their souls leave their body, right? And their souls float off to be in heaven with clouds and naked babies and harps and all, all the good stuff. That's not what Paul is picturing here. Christians, from the beginning, have affirmed the connectedness of the soul and the body. You are not a soul trapped in a body, and you are not a body without a soul. God has formed you uniquely to have both of those equally represented, equally valuable. Your body and your soul are you. There's no separating them, which is why the resurrection is crucially important. And again, we see nothing else quite like this in world history. In most ancient Greek philosophy and in most Eastern philosophy, the body in the world is a bad thing. And your soul needs to overcome the body in the world, move beyond the body in the world. In our Western world, we really love the body. We really emphasize the body, but often neglect the soul. Christianity says both are crucially important. The material world 
matters. Your body matters. It is a gift of God. It is formed by God. It is immensely valuable. And so the resurrection is not God scrapping what was formed as good. It's him restoring what was good and bringing the real goodness that it was made for back. And that affirmation of the body and soul here in this defeating of death that the resurrection represents, it's actually what leads us into the profound implications right now in our lives of the resurrection. Again, we don't want to become those guys walking around with our little picture, right, of the resurrection and failing to see the world around us. Paul makes sure that the resurrection leads to something that hones the here and the now. Notice in verse 58 how he ends the chapter. He says, therefore, therefore means in light of what I've just elaborated for you about the resurrection, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You see what Paul's doing? He's saying that if it's true that the resurrection involves every part of us, our body and our soul, the material and the spiritual, then what we do with our souls and our bodies now actually matters. The body and the soul matter here and now, and it's crucially important for us as Christians to see how the resurrection changes our lives today. I think there's three distinct ways that we see the resurrection honing the here and now for us. First, the resurrection reminds us that we are to love our bodies and love the world here. Christians and the church aren't just here to save souls. If you hear people say that, they're missing Christianity. We're not just here to save souls. We're here to save souls and bodies. Those two things are linked together. That's why in Jesus' ministry, he emphasizes feeding your hungry neighbor and proclaiming the gospel. That's why he emphasizes helping the widow and the orphan and the poor and forgiving your neighbor. There's a physical reality and a spiritual reality, and we are designed to live into both of those in the kingdom. There's a continuity today that will continue into eternity, and that means we as Christians are called to live out the restoration, the resurrection, now. C.S. Lewis talks about this. He says this is how Christians have done this well throughout history. He says, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves, who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, they all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. You guys, the resurrection never leads us to care less about our ecology, our world. It leads us instead to seek restoration because we know that's what God is going to do and we want to participate in it. It never leads us to uninvolvement in the lives of the needy. It always leads us to embody for them the restoration of Christ. It never leads us to use our minds and our bodies how we see fit. It leads us instead to allow Christ to shape our minds and our bodies here and now because we know that's what's coming. The resurrection leads us to love our bodies and the material world. But it's not just that. The resurrection also reminds us that we are eternal beings. Guys, every single one of you is eternal. Every one of you. Your body and your soul, they're going to last forever. And that means that every single person you interact with is eternal. Friends, you've never met an ordinary person. It's never happened. You've only ever met eternally significant people. People that are going to last forever which means every interaction you've ever had is laced 
with the texture of eternity. Do you see what that does for our lives? Kids ministry had to shut down. I was going to address the moms in the room because we had so many moms. None of the moms are here. They're on trips and everything else. Moms have to change the diapers of their babies all the time. And I'm sure it doesn't feel great, right? But every time they change a diaper, they're doing something for an eternally significant being. Every diaper change is an instilling of dignity into the child. That means it's of eternal significance. Those of you that are young professionals in the room right now, who spend a lot of your time in or around office spaces, when you have lunch with a coworker, that's an eternally significant conversation because it's of two people who are going to last forever. Everyone in this room, your neighbors, the ones that you like and the ones that you don't like, every time you interact with them, you're interacting with someone who's going to last forever. Every interaction you have is eternal. Every day, you get to experience the eternal life that God has for us here and now and continuing on, even after we die, which means everything you do has deep and profound meaning and significance. The resurrection does not make this life useless. It makes it significant. And finally, the third thing that the resurrection does for us, it reminds us that we're not to be afraid of death when we encounter it in the world. If it's true, in Christ, our bodies and souls are going to be resurrected upon death. It changes how I enter every situation that might bring fear of death or fear of anything. Because nothing in the world has power over me. Nothing in the world can eliminate my body and my soul. Because it's Christ's, and it's going to be resurrected. That's incredibly countercultural, friends, because we live in a world that's full of fear. You all brought in with you messages of fear that have been instilled in you for years. Fear of what might happen if the economy collapses. Right? Fear of what might happen, God forbid, that gas rises above $6. Right? Fear of what might happen if this person gets elected. Fear of re rejection. Fear of failure. Fear of vulnerability. Fear defines us in our world. But the resurrection unworks all of that. If we truly believe that we have life now and into eternity, we become immovable people so committed to a life of Christ that nothing can deter us from it. No fear can draw us away from the life of Christ. Now we just simply embody it. You can't do anything to me. You can't threaten me. Nothing can change my commitment to Jesus. And when Christians really realize this, they change the world in radical ways. I want to tell you guys the story of a guy named Larry. His real name is Lawrence, St. Lawrence, some church, but I call him Larry. Larry's his name. Larry lived in the Roman Empire when people didn't really love Christians that much, especially the Romans. And in the year 258, Emperor Valerian of Rome issued an order that all leaders in the church, bishops, priests, and deacons, are going to be killed, oft. And sure enough, they were. The Pope was killed. Pope Sixtus was his name. And Larry's in hiding. He's like, I, I, I need to like, save my life here, right? And I need to try to protect the church. But sure enough, they end up finding out where Larry is. And they tell Larry, hey, we know that the church has a lot of stuff, a lot of material goods, money and wealth. We need you to get that for us. And Larry knows that, okay, yeah, I'm going to do that, but then you're going to kill me, right? Like he knows you've killed everyone else in the church, you're going to kill me, and you also want the money of the church. And so Larry says, okay, you're right, we do have a lot of stuff, so let me, let me have three days to go collect all of this stuff. I'm like, okay, you've got three days, but if you don't come back, we'll find you and kill you, right? All right, so Larry knows these three days this is what i got to do. He immediately goes, collects as much wealth that the church has, and gives it all away to the poor. Every bit of it gives it away. 
to the people who really need it. And then he shows up to the prefect of Rome, who he was supposed to report to with all of the wealth that he's now given away. He doesn't show up with wealth. He shows up with the poor, with the oppressed, with the marginalized, with those who are lame and those who are blind. And then he says these words to the prefect of Rome. He says, these are the treasures of the church. This is it. And I can tell you that we in the church are truly rich, far richer prefect of Rome than your emperor. And then he was killed. Friends, if the resurrection can give Larry courage to embody Christ in his day when he is facing death, it can give us courage here and now to love and to serve and to give our lives away because nothing, nothing can harm us. Our lives are transformed by the resurrection here and now. It hones us. You guys, we as Christians are not a group of people who have their heads in the sand. We've never been. That's never been the point of this message. We're not bumping into people and making them drop their hot dogs on the ground. We're not walking ahead of those with crutches and leaving the door to close on them. That's not who we are. Because of the resurrection, not in spite of it. We are people who have experienced the restorative resurrection power of Christ in our lives. And we're the people who go into a world that needs that resurrection power, a world that's dying. This whole creed has been about how God is naming the goodness of the material world and how we as Christians are supposed to live in it. You caught that? God creates the material world and makes it good. He affirms that it's good. And then Jesus enters in the material world through the mess of a womb, through the mess of a birth. And then the church is the messy entity that God uses to restore the material world. The material is good. And we, as humans, are made to live in it. We, as Christians, are made to embody Christ in it. And this whole series, we've been naming that over and over and over, that we are a certain type of people who have been transformed by Jesus and who now go beyond these walls to transform the world around us. Which means whenever we say these words in the creed, we're not just doing some religious practice. We're not just being nice, pious Christians. When we say, I believe, we're proclaiming a revolution. That we believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Let's pray.